Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. This is The Josh Hammer Show. August 13th of this year marked the three-year anniversary of the first Abraham Accord agreement that was signed between Israel and the UAE, the United Arab Emirates. Soon, towards the tail end of the Trump administration, you had other Arab countries, such as Bahrain and Morocco, joining the circle of peace. The Abraham Accords, if you recall, were these transformative, dynamic peace agreements signed in the very final months of the Trump administration between Israel, the UAE, Bahrain, Morocco, and kind of sort of Sudan. And they've resulted in a very warm, flourishing peace in many ways between these countries. I would know that personally because I actually took that flight from Tel Aviv to Dubai, only made possible by the Abraham Accords. I took that flight last December when I was in the region. And seeing kind of the seeds of this dynamic peace that the Trump administration working hand in hand with their Israeli, Emirati, Bahraini and so forth counterparts, seeing really the nature of this peace, the warm, the warmth, the trade, the economic ties, the, the cultural ties, the food, the culinary, all of it. It's really made a huge difference in the Middle East. If you think about Israel's two prior Middle East Arab peace agreements with Egypt and Jordan. I'm talking about here about very cold, cold pieces. Not the Abraham Accord. It's been a very, very warm tale. And the Biden administration, tragically, has been very slow to pick up on the Abraham Accords. In fact, for a very long time, they refused to even say the name Abraham Accords. And they seem to be undermining it in many ways, whether it is appeasing the Palestinians, which is the exact opposite of the Trump recipe towards Middle East peace, whether it is appeasing the Iranian regime, also the exact opposite of the Trump approach that led to these transformative dynamic peace deals. And the million dollar question, the million dollar question is, will Saudi Arabia, the most important Arab country in the region, will they join the Abraham Accords with the very talented and precocious young crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman. That is the question of the day in Middle East foreign policy circles. Fortunately, we have for you a really terrific guest to break it all down for us. Arya Lightstone, the former number two guy in the U.S. Embassy in Israel under President Donald Trump. He's the former senior advisor to the U.S. ambassador to Israel and special envoy for the Abraham Accords and the author of the 2022 book, Let My People Know, the incredible story of Middle East peace and what lies ahead. So we're going to bring on Arya Lightstone for you to talk about what the Abraham Accords have been and what they will hopefully, God willing, continue to be, whether it's under President Biden or if it must wait for a future Republican administration to expand the circle of peace.
Angie's List is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. The Josh Hammer Show. Our guest today is Arya Lightstone. He is the former senior advisor to the U.S. ambassador to Israel and special envoy for the Abraham Accords. And his book, released just over a year ago, is Let My People Know, The Incredible Story of Middle East Peace and What Lies Ahead. Arya, thank you so much for joining us this week. Thank you for having me. Yeah, of course. So I want to bring you on in particular because we have just reached the three-year anniversary of the Abraham Accords. So the first accord signed between, or at least announced, not quite signed, but announced between Israel and the UAE was August 13th, if I have the date correct, of of the year 2020. Bahrain, Morocco joined not so long thereafter. The formal signing ceremony was in the White House in September 2020. You were there. You were instrumental in, in making this happen. You've about and spoken about it at, at great length. So I guess my first question to you is, is looking back now, three years later, different administration, different foreign policy priorities, we'll get into all of that. How do you feel? How, how, how does the legacy of what you, Jared Kushner, and many others works so much on, how do you feel about that legacy item now, three years looking back? Like, like I'm eating dark chocolate. Uh, it's chocolate, so it's awesome. Uh, but it could be so much better. And sort of what I mean by that is, look, the accords could have fallen apart in May of 2021 under a new administration, a new prime minister of Israel, rockets firing from Gaza, if you remember that, over 2,000, uh, Israel needing to be appropriately so, but forceful in their response to, to Hamas, essentially attacking all of Israel with their rockets. And it became very hairy. Uh, and Ramadan coincided with that as well. And with all of that, uh, the accord stood. And as the accords made it through that, I was very confident that the accords would stand the test of time. Have they reached their potential? The answer to that is most certainly not. Have they demonstrated what the appropriate way forward is in the region? They absolutely have. And you're referring here to the skirmish in May 2021, if I recall, right? This was this was the this, this, this skirmish with Hamas. OK, so the accords, the accords have stood now. now the Biden administration, in many ways, did not seem exactly quick, shall we say, to, to, to kind of go all in on the Abraham Accords. In fact, if I if memory serves, for a long time, they actually resisted the terminology of the Abraham Accords for unclear reasons. I guess they've since kind of kind of come around to that. 
Now, there's been some movement within the Senate and when the within the administration to kind of announce an Ibrahim Accord specific ambassador. Uh, does that strike you as a as a good idea from from a U.S. presidential standpoint in, in terms of trying to expand the circle of peace there in the Middle East, or is that kind of just more bureaucratic red tape without any tangible benefit? The answer is purely in terms of what sort of leverage he or she has to actually dictate policy. If that policy is just going to be a reflection of the knee-jerk reaction of the State Department that has to inject the Palestinians into everything in the Middle East and to elevate the Iranians via this administration into every equation in the Middle East, then you can call him an ambassador. You can call him or her a post office, uh, you know, dog catcher. Uh, it, the job isn't going to matter. The reason why peace broke the paradigm over the you know 25 years from the Jordan-Israeli peace deal to the UAE-Israeli peace deal, then in 123 days, five separate agreements were signed, UAE, then Bahrain, after Bahrain, Kosovo, and then Sudan, and ultimately Morocco. I mean, there was a flurry of peace breaking out in the Middle East and North Africa, and, and that happened because it was directed from the White House. It was the will of the President of the United States of America and his closest emissaries, to be able to get that done. Now, something fascinating that you pointed out, we're actually not at the three-year anniversary of the Abraham Accords. We are at that. But we're also at the exactly the two-year anniversary of the first time the administration came out publicly in favor of the Abraham Accords, because right. that was the day after the Afghanistan debacle. They, they went from, and debacle is a terrible word for it, I'm sorry. I mean, 13, 13 of our soldiers died. I don't want to say needlessly. That's not appropriate for their memory. But due to poor leadership and poor direction, and it was the next day that in the United Nations, the U.S. ambassador started touting the Abraham Accords. There's not a coincidence to that. And when you want to talk about the administration's mental gymnastics to avoid saying the name, that's the whole reason why I wrote the book. Uh, if you look in May of 2021, before the Gaza a skirmish broke out, uh, Ned Price, the spokesperson of the United States of America, the person who represents the State Department, is at the podium. And Matt Lee, the enterprising journalist from the AP, uh, asked him a question. What were the names of the agreements that the previous administration had negotiated? And you can look it up on YouTube, about two minutes and 40 seconds of Ned turning himself into a pretzel to avoid saying the word Abraham Accords. The goal was to slap Trump. Okay. But the result was diminished all of our allies. All of our allies signed on to a document that declared it was the Abraham Accords, not the Trump Accords, but the Abraham Accords. And to not even say that caused, I think, some of the greatest damage to our foreign policy for the following reason. It became clear that there was not American foreign policy. There's Republican foreign policy or Trump foreign policy, and there's Biden foreign policy. And our friends and allies have no idea how to game plan for that. The whole kind of refusing to say Abraham Accords thing never made even remote sense to me, because if you think about it from a, a liberal perspective, they should be all in on the phraseology, because what is the title saying other than trying to kind of have interreligious peace, interreligious harmony? I mean, uh, it's a direct reference to the fact that the three great monotheistic religions, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, have a common patriarch going back, of course, thousands of years ago to Abraham. I mean, to me, that just seems like something that it's just so not a partisan issue. I mean, so the fact that they made it a partisan issue truly does kind of, I think, show and reveal the fact that for this administration, everything, everything really is about kind of getting Trump or getting the other side yeah. or, or so much of that. So 
Let's kind of talk about the Accords itself. So, you know, you know Ari, I got engaged in, in Jerusalem last December, and then my fiance and I continued our travels. We went to the UAE and to Egypt. So I actually did that Tel Aviv to Dubai flight, which is kind of like the iconic Abraham Accords flight. And it was it, it was cool. I mean, it, it felt very cool. So, uh, you know, I have been there. I, you know, there are a bunch of Arabs, Israelis on the plane, everyone. Uh, and it was just a, it was just very cool to be a part of that, admittedly, a, a couple of years after the Accords had been signed. But besides kind of just travel uh, of Arabs, Israelis to each other's countries, let's talk about some of the the tangible benefits. So can you just kind of highlight some of from your perspective what has come from the day to day lives of those, whether it's in terms of tourism, trade, investment, just some of the the, kind of the, the seminal achievements that you think have kind of been inked and implemented over the past few years? Yeah, you can go from the highest level, which sort of says, look, the Middle East from a U.S. perspective was divided into two superpowers. There was Israel that had the superpower of the United States of America, and there was the Palestinians that had the superpower of all the 80 plus uh, Arab Muslim majority countries. And the premise was until you resolve Israeli Palestinian conflicts, then you can't go ahead and move ahead with the region. And that caused lots of domino effects. Ironically enough, the thesis was that if you can just solve Arab-Israeli peace then you, or Israeli-Palestinian peace, then all of the issues in the Middle East would be resolved. The irony is, is by saying that that was the fulcrum of the challenges in the Middle East, you actually caused an enormous amount of problems. You caused problems for Israeli Arabs. You caused problems for Palestinians. You caused problems for all of the neighboring countries halting the concept of progress in the name of litigating something that was likely not to get resolved based upon the framework that had been agreed upon from the Oslo Accords. So the very, very first thing that happened with the breakthrough of the Abraham Accords was let's focus on the future. Let's look at the next 50 years. It doesn't mean that the Emiratis for a minute are thrilled with the air, with the Israeli Palestinian issue. They're not. And they make it clear, but they've decided to work that issue from the inside instead of from the outside. And they discovered, which is a factual truism, is that working together with Israel is going to do better for the Emirati people than ignoring Israel. And that goes to the second piece. This is uh, and I've heard you write about this. I've heard you speak about this. But deregulation, right? regulation kills everything. This is I look at it as the largest deregulation in the history of the Middle East. You had unnatural bureaucracy, unnatural walls in between UAE and Israel. You couldn't make a phone call. You know, a cool thing about the first flight that went from Israel to Abu Dhabi was flight number 971. Why was it 971? Because the area code of the UAE is 971. And the first return flight was area was flight 972 because the area code of Israel is 972. It's cute and it's sweet and it's nice. But the answer is until we took that flight, you cannot make a phone call from an Emirati 971 to Israeli 972. We signed an agreement while we were there on that first historic flight to enable phone calls to happen. So once you've got phone calls, you've got visits, you've got visas, you've got tourism, you've got flights. Here's where it boils down to, I think, in a meaningful way. Israeli Arabs, I think, have historically been a little bit conflicted. What do they do? They're in the greatest country in the Middle East from a democracy perspective. If you are not born to royalty and you're born as a Arab Muslim or Arab Christian anywhere in the Middle East, what are the odds of you personally succeeding? Your odds are highest in Israel than any other country. But you've got a challenge because the rest of the Arab slash Muslim world looks at you as a pariah. You have to be kept separate. The other place that you'd like to be born is in the United Arab Emirates. So to see the leadership of the UAE acknowledge that Israel, while not perfect, 
is going to be a strategic ally that allows the Israeli Arabs to not be double lives, but to have a broader life, to be able to be the bridge in between this. And I think that's going to be an enormous opportunity. And frankly, if the Palestinians saw this as the opportunity that they should, they could also be part of that bridge as well. So just the feeling in the Middle East has changed. And I don't know how you quantify that uh, other than flights and dollars and cents. But but walk on the street. The feeling is different. I felt that. I mean, I was in Dubai, Abu Dhabi, Sharjah. We went to a number of the different kind of emirates within the UAE. And I, I mean, there was literally just to kind of clarify for, for, for the listeners here. There was literally a kosher restaurant in the Burj Khalifa, like like now, which is the world's tallest structure. It's it's the iconic kind of almost 3,000 foot tall structure in downtown Dubai. There was literally, I think, a high end kosher. It might be a steakhouse. I don't really know exactly what it is. No, it is. And it's hard to get a reservation there. Yeah. And like, that's just incredible. Right. I mean, we know we had Eric Erickson, the Georgia based radio host, as a guest earlier on this show many months ago and, and you know Eric grew up at a because I can't remember exactly why he was going out there but he spent a large swaths of his childhood in Dubai actually he went to I think a Christian like American school there and he he has these stories when he was growing up there the, the textbooks of the geography of the Middle East you know Israel's not there they literally wrote it out they would just write Palestine you, you obviously couldn't make a phone call like you said so the fact that all this is happening now I mean it's very easy I think for many people to take it for granted but to say that this has been a breakthrough would be a, a serious understatement and it, it kind of what I'm trying to flesh out here is that it's not just a cold peace because Israel has made cold peace with Jordan, with Egypt. But this is a, this is a much warmer peace, I mean, perhaps in particular with, with the UAE and Bahrain, although Morocco is getting quite a bit warmer as well. But I'm happy you mentioned the Palestinians because that's actually exactly where I want to go with, with my next question, which is, to me, the real genius of the Abraham Accords was to show the fallacy of the so-called inside-out approach to Middle East peace. So for decades and decades, the bipartisan foreign policy establishment in the United States said, if you want Middle East peace, if, if, you, if you want this, the Saudis and all the kind of major players in Middle East, if you want them to recognize Israel, you need a two-state solution, concessions, you know, get rid of the settlements, West Bank, blah, 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 right? And to me, the real genius of the Trump administration working hand in hand in many ways with, with Netanyahu over in Israel was to do the exact opposite, was to go all in on kind of the U.S.-Israel alliance so the U.S. will stand with Israel. And by strengthening Israel, you kind of show the appeal of Israel to the UAE, Bahrain and other kind of anti-Iran or Iran skeptical actors. Was that on the inside how you guys were viewing it as well? Or is that just kind of my outside perception? No, you nailed it. And if you look at the look, personnel is policy. When President Trump nominated David Friedman uh, before he nominated some of his cabinet members and David's first press release, who he was my boss for four years. His first press release was I look forward to working from my office in Jerusalem. That wasn't the president's policy at that point in time. Uh, I'm not sure how much the president paid attention to Jerusalem and the embassy issue prior to assuming the presidency. After he assumed the presidency, it became a major issue, and he knew it backwards and forwards, and he ultimately made the decision. He deserves all of the credit for that. But prior to that, I mean, hiring David Friedman, Jason Greenblatt, uh, Jared Kushner, Avi Berkowitz, uh, ultimately Mike Pence, Nikki Haley, um, uh, obviously Mike Pompeo later on. I'm saying th- th- these are these are people who knew that the closer we stand with our allies, the better off we were going to be. And what they knew was also something different, which is the rest of the world looks at how we treat Israel. Because we've always been an anomaly. U.S. has always been an anomaly regarding Israel. And they look at how we treat Israel and they then gauge what our commitment will be to them. There's this outsized belief about APAC or about the the, the Jewish lobby. I mean, sometimes these anti-Semitic tropes 
become sort of these myths that that rise in people's minds about how powerful uh, you know Jewish decision makers are in uh, in Washington D.C. and they look around and they see this. That isn't any of the reason why the U.S. has a relationship with Israel. The reason why the U.S. has a relationship with Israel is because we get enormous amount of reciprocity from a country that's, what, a 30th our size, maybe a 35th our size uh, in technology and intelligence and military and economy, all of these various different things. And therefore, we stand with Israel. But the countries around the world look and see what that relationship is, and they gauge our relationship with them. And guess what our relationship will then be with that country? And the way that that manifested itself was we never allowed Israel to determine its own capital by not acknowledging Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, by putting our embassy there. And once we did those things, there sort of became this, we're not on the fence anymore. We're all in for Israel. We're all in for the democracy in the Middle East. We're all against Iran. And and by the way, the the critical part about the Iran thing, which we may speak about later, Pompeo laid out 12 steps that allows Iran to reenter into the community of nations, which is good. You have to have a, what do you get if you go ahead and turn it around? What does turning it around look like? So we were very clear with what that looked like. At the same time, it became very clear to the countries of the Middle East that you can't have Israel erased from your school textbooks. It's a reality. It's part of the region. And if you want to acknowledge the United States of America as a player in the region and the world, then you have to acknowledge our best friend in the region, which is Israel. Makes total sense to me. So we're going to take it to a quick commercial break here. We are talking with Arya Lightstone, who's the former senior advisor to the U.S. ambassador to Israel, special envoy for the Abraham Accords. And we are talking about the three-year anniversary of the Abraham Accords. Stay with us. We will be right back. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Josh Hammer Show. So, Arya, I have a theory about the Abraham Accords as a possible model for U.S. foreign policy around the world, not just the Middle East. And I want to want to hear your your thoughts on this. My basic take is that just to kind of you know cards on the table. My thoughts on U.S. foreign policy in general. I am neither a gun-toting neoconservative nor a Ron Paul isolationist. I think that there is a prudential kind of realist. In many ways, actually, the Trump foreign policy doctrine kind of intuitive this understood. And Michael Anton had this great essay at Foreign Policy Magazine in 2019 called The Trump Doctrine. And uh, in many ways, I actually think that Trump got foreign policy right arguably more than anything else that he did right, as I've said publicly many times. And the Abraham Accords to me encapsulates that because if you want the U.S., to have a comparatively lesser footprint in many regions so that it might be able to kind of 
save capital for really China above all, which has become the U.S.'s great rival. It makes sense then to try to do what you can diplomatically, economically and so forth to bring your other allies together such that they can combine their might with some U.S. supervision, perhaps, to then contain the great hegemonic threat in the region, which in the Middle East obviously is Iran. And I've kind of speculated that that could be a possible model to go into the Indo-Pacific as far as kind of Chinese containment as well. Does that make sense to you or am I getting a little too abstract, theoretical, sounding like a professor or something like that? No, your point is exactly right. The key is, can the United States of America be a convener? If we can be a convener or an umbrella for our allies and lay out very specifically that which we expect of them and listen to them, that which they can actually accomplish, we can then go ahead and protect both our interest and our influence without putting our young men and young women at risk in a meaningful way and actually without spending a lot of capital. Uh, And the Middle East is a great example of this. Israel has led by they will protect themselves by themselves. And the U.S., for a fairly nominal amount of money, both has enhanced defense uh, spending and production at home and access to some of the greatest intelligence and military use cases in the world via Israel. Some of the other countries in the region, Saudi, UAE, Bahrain, uh, are likely not to protect themselves by themselves, but are likely to participate meaningfully in the funding and the creation of, of uh, uh, some of this uh, integration. That would make sense. And the, the sum of the parts here is far greater uh, or the whole is far better than than just the uh, the value of the parts. And adding Israel to that equation is incredibly meaningful. I'll just give you one great example of, of how ridiculous we were. The first ever direct flight from Saudi Arabia to uh, Israel was President Trump when he left in May of 2017. Wow. He did his Saudi, I did not know that. Saudi, Israel, and then ultimately Rome, right? The three great religions was was right. his, his trip, uh, I think, planned by Jared. And um, I, I wasn't in the government at that point in time. But I, as I've heard this story, he looks at his daily briefing uh, chart and it says um, he was in Saudi Arabia. It says he's stopping in Jordan. And he turns to Jared or whomever was next to him at that point in time and says, I just met the king of Jordan. Why am I stopping in Jordan? Well, you can't fly from Israel, from Saudi Arabia to Israel because they don't have relations. And the president turned to whomever it was and said, but we have relations with both of those countries. Why am I stopping in Jordan? And that was the first time it dawned upon any senior member of any government of the United States of America who says, because they don't get along, doesn't mean that we have to be subject to their rules. And he says, flying Air Force One, I'm going to fly directly from Saudi Arabia to Israel. And he was the first plane who ever, to ever do that. And it made sense. The fact that we had American planes flying presidents and secretaries of state and secretaries of the treasury stopping in between countries that we're allied with makes no sense. And to tip that off, you know, we divide our military areas and Israel, which is squarely in the Middle East, was always in Eurocom, was always in European command, as opposed to central command, which is the Middle East, which is where we've had an enormous amount of focus prior to the Ukraine uh, war. And Israel has been in Eurocom. Why would Israel ever be in Eurocom? We, the United States of America, host our regions. We provide our material and our intelligence and our security, our umbrella, and we kept Israel out. Had we kept Israel in, I promise you every other country would have shown up. But we were not acting in our best interest. When we didn't open up our embassy in Jerusalem, we knew where the capital of Israel was, but we were blocked by our perception of what other countries would think of us. That's not the United States of America leading. It's the United States of America following. When we lead 
other countries will be able to fall right. into place in a meaningful way, exactly how you're describing it. You know, this notion, we hear a lot about the term the Arab street, this kind of a term that gets floated around foreign policy circles a lot. The idea was that, you know, if, if God forbid, if the U.S. has the temerity to move its embassy in Israel from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, the proverbial Arab street would melt down. You know, Hamas would go on a rampage, Hezbollah, all of that. It's worth underscoring that none of that happened. I mean, precisely none of that happened, in part because Trump's foreign policy kind of helped ensure that that these actors knew that there would be serious repercussions if they were to act. But, you know, it's worth underscoring that notion, which is that when the U.S. acts and when it, you know, most importantly, when it acts not from a place of weakness, but from a place of authority where here we are, this is our policy. You either like it or you don't like it, but we're going to do it regardless. People will listen. <laughs> People will tend to fall into line on that. But I'm happy you mentioned the Saudis there as part of that very interesting story on the flight from Riyadh to Jerusalem, because the Saudi issue is where I want to go next. So this has been the million dollar question, not just past year. I mean, really, ever since uh, the end of the Trump administration, early Biden administration, you know, I had, I had heard from some folks uh, inside the Trump administration, some, some of whom told me that, if the, you know, if Trump had been reelected, then Saudi would have probably joined the accords within the first six months of the Trump second term. You know, I, I wasn't there. So who knows? But that's what I've heard. And here we are, and we're, you know, we're almost three years now after the Emiratis and Bahrainis were there on the White House lawn. And Saudi Arabia, which is really the most important country for many reasons in the entire Arab world, is not formally a part of the Abraham Accords, but the Biden administration seems to be interested, I, I, I'm emphasizing seems to be interested uh, in trying to pull Mohammed bin Salman into the accords. They've, uh, Anthony Blinken and others have been over there and in Riyadh, Jeddah, trying to kind of sweet talk uh, the crown prince Mohammed bin Salman. On the other hand, Arya, as you and I kind of have discussed off screen, the administration continues to have this horrific flirtation with the Iranian regime. So what, what are your thoughts on the prospects for the Saudis joining the accords within this administration or potentially in the next administration? I think the number one thing that happened three years ago on August 13, 2020, the lexicon of the Middle East changed and it went from will countries ever make peace with Israel to when will countries make peace with Israel? And the answer to that is very simple. And and this is what, what Michael uh explained in his piece in foreign policy and which you articulated, which is, look, every country is going to do what's best for them as a country. So Israel should do what's best for Israel and the United States of America should do best what's best for the United States of America. And frankly, Saudi Arabia needs to do what's best for Saudi Arabia. That's the job of the crown prince and the king. When the Abraham Accords were not resoundingly supported by the next administration, it, by the Biden administration, it became clear that this was going to be a partisan, unfortunately, a partisan circumstance. And the question is, how does peace pay? Well, if countries joined the Abraham Accords to get close to the United States of America, but the result based upon the administration was not greater closeness to the United States of America, well, other countries around the world, including Saudi Arabia, are going to look at that and say, wait a second, what's going to happen if I join the Accords? And so therefore, you can look at that in two different ways. You can see the Saudis saying, look, I want to make peace with Israel. Maybe the time's right. Maybe the time's not right. Ironically enough, if I make peace with the Saudis, it's more likely to have if I make peace during the Biden administration, excuse me, it's more likely to have bipartisan support than if I make peace during a Republican administration. So ironically enough, there may be a calculation going on that direction. Now, where the U.S. is concerned, you said with the U.S. flirting with Iran, 
I don't know. If I flirted with a girl and gave her six billion dollars, I would assume that she would think that we're fully married. Six billion is a real dollar amount and six billion is a real ransom payment. And six billion dollars is 24 times what the Iranians spend on their nuclear program annually. That money will go to kill people. They're the largest purveyors of terror in the region. And the only deal that's been done in the last three years in the entire region was in between Saudi Arabia and Iran brokered by China. So when the U.S. leaves the region, it's not filled by Costa Rica. That vacuum of power and influence is filled by China and Russia and now Iran. And that's a disaster. I'll just paint sort of one picture of what will happen when Saudi Arabia joins the accords, because they will join. And I hope I hope and pray that they'll join it for the right reasons at the right time with the correct um, motivation. Because if our number one foe is China, which I believe that it is, and we need to compete against them, right now China has in their sphere of influence Russia, Iran, and now partially Saudi Arabia. So that is the energy that it would take to supply the entire world. If the United States of America expands the Abraham Accords under either administration, but does it fully and not as a transaction, but does it as a I'm building a new Middle East. And if you can imagine from Oman and UAE, Bahrain, Qatar, Saudi Arabia to Jordan, Egypt and Israel, unlimited land, unlimited job opportunities, unlimited energy supply, unlimited economic resources and unlimited technology. If we want to be able to have a force, a wall against Chinese expansion and Iranian hegemony, as you described it, the Abraham Accords is the answer. And so we need to be all in for that, whether it's with the crown prince of of Saudi Arabia or with the Sultan of Oman. It needs to be all in. Point well taken, by the way, about the six billion dollar payment, which um, you know comes uh, comes on the heels of the Biden administration's attempts to try to rekindle the JCPOA, the first Iran nuclear deal. I guess time will tell whether or not this ransom payment, which you are accurately describing it, I should say, as a ransom payment, you know, time will tell whether or not that is separate from kind of a rejuvenated Iran nuclear deal or or part of kind of the the reemergence of that deal. Um, sorted stuff, certainly either way. So the basic outlines of the Saudi joins the Abraham Accords deal, if I kind of remember the basic contours of this correctly, is that the U.S. would agree to kind of a a, a NATO Article 5 style security blanket commitment to the Saudis. They probably have the Iranians in mind here, the Saudis, if I were guessing. And Saudi also gets to have its own civilian nuclear program. And then some sort of amorphous, ill-defined concessions, whatever those may be, from the Israelis to the Palestinians, which kind of brings me back to August 2020, when I think Netanyahu said that he would not uh, incorporate some parts of Judea and Samaria into uh, Israeli civilian law. The quote-unquote annex um, was a term used by the mainstream media at the time. Does that strike you as a good deal for for the relevant actors, the contours of that deal? Or what are your thoughts on kind of the outlines of that possible deal? And this is what's been publicly reported. I don't know any more than that, which has been publicly reported. I think you have to bifurcate this into two things. President Biden wanted to make the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, uh, Mohammed bin Salman, a pariah. That's what he said. Yep. Uh, Saudi Arabia is a very important country to the Middle East, to the Muslim people and to the United States of America. Making one of our friends into a pariah is not a good strategy from my perspective in any circumstance. And we need to repair that relationship. If Saudi Arabia starts trading oil in the yen and falls further under Chinese influence, that's a terrible thing. If Saudi Arabia is endangered because of the Iran deal that the Obama administration and the Biden administration wants to continue, that's a terrible thing. So 
Could the United States of America provide one of or all of those things in exchange for a better relationship with Saudi Arabia? The United States of America should consider that very strongly. We should never be in this situation. Right. All of these are undoing mistakes that we made. They, they, they're not own goals. They were they were we actively played against ourselves. This wasn't accidental. These were all purposeful made decisions by the Obama and Biden administration vis-a-vis Israel. Here's how we looked at it was we're closer to Israel. We're going to stand with Israel. And because we're standing with Israel, other countries are going to want to become part of those accords. And once you have a relationship with Israel, so now all of the conversations that were previously off the table can now be on the table. But I don't think it makes sense to pre-negotiate what a deal should look like. First, make peace with Israel because peace makes sense. And then let's talk about how we elevate our relationship. Does the U.S. need to replace this, uh, repair the Saudi relationship anyways? Yes. Let's have that conversation. Don't make don't make the Abraham Accords a transaction. I think that weakens them. Totally, totally fair. Um, and, and I, for what it's worth, I, I strongly share your view of the Saudis. You, you, you know, it's interesting. You hear a lot in kind of lefty foreign policy circles. I mean, folks like, you know, Bernie Sanders, Sheldon Whitehouse. Uh, or Chris Murphy of Connecticut, I guess is who I'm thinking of, who tend to kind of decry, you know, uh, the Saudi regime and this and that and that. I mean, I mean, have these people kind of taken a look at the human rights record of the Iranian regime? I mean, are we going to be even like remotely intellectually consistent here or not? But, you know, my own views in foreign policy, again, are tend to be very kind of sober and hard headed and realist. And I, I, I for one, am, am a strong defender of the, of the U.S.-Saudi relationship. And I, you know, I, I, I hope and pray. And, you know, your optimism, as you've expressed, has given me reason to one day perhaps expect that the Saudis will will join the circle of peace, whether it's in this administration or the next one. So uh, once again, Arya Lightstone, former senior advisor to the U.S. ambassador to Israel, special envoy for the Abraham Accords and the author of the 2022 book, Let My People Know, the incredible story of Middle East peace and what lies ahead. So Arya, it's been a real delight to have you on here on the three-year anniversary of the Abraham Accords. Thank you so much for joining Thank you for having me. Great conversation. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Josh Hammer Show. It's Ah! Hammer Time. Go! New York City Mayor Eric Adams seeks to house migrants in notorious Manhattan jail where Jeffrey Epstein died. 
Now, it's funny when you look at Eric Adams, who was elected on something of a more pro-law and order, pro-rule of law platform, certainly compared with his addle-brained predecessor, the pseudo or crypto-socialist Bill de Blasio. But Eric Adams has not exactly lived up to the billing. I mean, New York City crime seems to be just as bad, probably worse than ever, frankly. We also have these ridiculous images of, of that riot in, in Union Square, people jumping on the cars. I mean, the stuff of third world banana republics, frankly, is what you saw there. But Eric Adams has finally been sounding the alarm about the illegal alien crisis. So, you know, Greg Abbott, the governor of Texas, to his great credit, when Texas started leading the way in shipping these migrants to these blue enclaves for the express purpose of making these blue city Democrat leaders feel the pain, the liberal intelligentsia, the corporate media looked at that story and they said, oh, what is this Yahoo? What is this cowboy? What does he think he's up to there? Well, you know what? turns out that Greg Abbott was actually onto something there because Eric Adams has been among the Democrats to his mild credit, who has finally been speaking out about this outrageous migrant crisis, which the mainstream media continues to ignore. So good for him in that respect. Chad GPT has a significant liberal bias, researchers say. I, I mean, really? Are you just realizing this now? I mean, I mean, there have been stories coming out for months and months now, I, I think back to this essay that I read in the public discourse, which is kind of a more erudite conservative publication. I think back to this essay I read there months ago where someone was talking about the outrageous bias that Chad G- GPT had on the abortion issue. I, I, I think someone was having a conversation with Chad GPT and was asking, oh, when does life begin? And it was kind of this, you know, non-answer answer sort of question, not, notwithstanding the fact that there's a, there's a guy by the name of Stephen Jacobs who I've known for years. He, he wrote a PhD where he basically tried to take a global survey of the world's biologists, asking them a very simple question. When does life actually begin according to capitalist science? You know, the science that the left claims that they love so much. And something like 95 to 96 percent of the biologists served in this four to five thousand ish person survey said that life begins at conception, at fertilization. And sure enough, ChatGPT was unable to bring its conclusions there in line with the scientific consensus. Any number of other issues that I've seen, whether it comes to guns, Second Amendment, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Yeah, of course, ChatGPT has a significant liberal bias because it's liberals who are putting in the programming material to get the code in the first place you freaking idiots. All right. Smash and grab mob robberies spark Los Angeles clampdown. So this is the new trend in Soros prosecutor anarchic big blue city hellholes. And shocker, you know, when you say that you're not going to prosecute crime, people are going to commit more crime. I think in New York City, it was either Alvin Bragg or his predecessor announced this absurd policy that petty theft under like $199. I can't remember the exact threshold, the exact cutoff, they literally announced a policy of quote-unquote prosecutorial discretion where they would actually not prosecute theft below a monetary threshold. And, you know, what do you think is going to happen, you idiots, when you announce a specific monetary dollar figure like that? Well, people are going to start making off with $198 if you set the non-prosecution threshold for $199. I mean, just absolute, absolute idiocy, unfortunately, has pervaded far too many of America's big blue cities. The worst statistic of all, the one that comes to mind immediately to me, the notion that Soros prosecutors actually control 20%, one out of five Americans, if you actually look at the total 
populations of these big blue cities, L.A., New York, and so forth. Just awful, awful stuff. Judge dismisses Hunter Biden misdemeanor tax charges. So this is the saga that seemingly will never end. The so-called special counsel, David Weiss, if you've heard of him, he, of course, was the U.S. attorney who previously, we now know from IRS whistleblowers, was gumming up the works in the five-year Hunter Biden administration. By the way, that is directly contrary to the exact statutory wording of the special counsel authorizing statute. The special counsel is supposed to come from someone outside the government, not supposed to be a sitting U.S. attorney. So we will see how that ends, but hard to be too optimistic about this. Finally, there's this tempest in a teapot surrounding Bradley Cooper, who is putting on a prosthetic nose as part of his being cast and acting out the role of Leonard Bernstein, the fabulous composer for the upcoming film Maestro. And a lot of people are saying that this is anti-Semitic, that he's putting on the fake nose to play a prominent Jewish figure. You guys, calm down. Calm down. Bradley Cooper is a phenomenal actor. He's not doing this for anything other than trying to feel and look and act the part. In fact, Leonard Bernstein's children collectively wrote a statement, a public statement, saying that they had no issue whatsoever with Bradley Cooper doing this. I happen to be a big fan of Bradley Cooper. I think he's an extremely talented actor. There is a lot of anti-Semitism in the world. Focus on that, not this bit of crap. find cars like these on auto trader like that car riding right your tail or if you're tailgating right now all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on auto trader too are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time well multitasking pro cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on auto trader new cars used cars electric cars maybe even flying cars okay no flying cars but as soon as they get invented they'll be on auto trader just you wait auto trader